0: Before Pastor Justin comes to bring the message, would you look to the scriptures with me? We're reading this morning from John chapter 8, and you can use the screen if you'd like to, although it's nice to use your own uh, version, whether digital or paper, Uh, and we're looking together, reading the words from John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from, came from, and where I am going. But you do not know where I came, come from, or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it it is written, that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going you cannot come. So the Jews said he will kill himself since he says where I am going you cannot come. He said to them you are from below. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these amazing words. They puzzle us as they did the first hearers, and yet in them we hear truth and light. And we pray, Jesus, that you will communicate your truth to us, that you will grant us understanding, that you'll speak through Pastor Justin, and that you will lead us in your path. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Good morning, Church. Good morning. <clears throat> so I have some teens sitting on the front row and apparently gonna make funny faces at me, but it's not gonna work. Although I thought there was four, but there's actually only three because Sean's so short. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, man. So uh I love you, Sean. Yep. Um so Matt and Hannah had a baby. She was uh, 8 pounds, 13 ounces. Yeah. She came out apparently, man, I am whew, echoing. She came out with jet black hair, full head of hair. And if you've seen their other two kids, they, are, they came out bald and were incredibly blonde. So Matt is investigating who the mailman is. Um, and for the record, he said that joke, <laughs> so I felt I felt like it was okay for me to say it if he said it about himself in front of his wife. Um, and then Ed and Ellie, they they had already planned. so Matt was actually supposed to preach this week because uh, Ed and Ellie had planned a nice little getaway weekend. And so because Ed and Ellie hadn't haven't had a baby, like Ed was put on notice because as Dave said. My wife is due on Thursday. Uh, and so we have this kind of nightmare scenario of, oh, what happens if this? Uh, and so in first service, thankfully Megan's here now, so her water didn't break <laughs> during first service. I had my iPhone up on the on the stand just in case. Um, and so if, if she gives me a certain look, it's go time. Uh, however, as you know, like... Pregnant people have to use the bathroom. So if she gets up and goes, and I don't freak out, that, you know, don't you guys freak out. We'll get, we'll get through it together, okay? Uh, I have a confession, though. I, I'm going to get fired. Um, so I, I make a joke about the associate pastor, and then yesterday I just couldn't resist. I texted Ed with no emojis, with no punctuation, Megan's water just broke. <laughs> and I just left it. I just left it because I wanted him to spiral out of control. And sure enough, he, he responded to me, all caps, Justin! Exclamation point. He said, just send me your sermon. I'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> and so I let it sit there for like five minutes because I didn't want to let it sit there too long because I didn't want him to change, actually change his plans. And so to which I responded, ha 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 got you uh and <laughs> he just responded darn you uh, <laughs> and i don't think that's what he was really saying in his mind but <laughs> so it, it made me happy though i finally pulled a joke on ed that worked um so yeah i'm excited it's a privilege to be up here since they hired matt they won't let me preach anymore um But it takes a baby and a a getaway weekend for me to get up here. But I'm excited. Uh, We are going through the book of John. Uh, We find ourselves at chapter 8, verses 12 through 30 today. Um, And the setting, setting, so just a couple context points for you guys to help understand this passage. Uh, The setting of this is... Um, the what's called the Feast of the Tabernacles. So it was like this big festival that would happen in Jerusalem, and tons of people would come to it. It was busy. It was great. And this is also the setting in. So this is the setting in chapter seven, and John makes reference to the crowd multiple times. He is saying there was a great crowd. There was a large crowd. There was many in the crowd. Uh, does that multiple times in chapter seven. However, in chapter eight, and not until not nine, not ten, and not eleven, not until verse fifty-two in chapter eleven, does he make reference to the great crowd or a great crowd again. And so we can just kind of from that assume that um, you know this festival, which was a huge deal. it it is either coming to a close or actively coming to a close or it is closed and it has ended and there's just not as many people there. There's not as many people there as there were in chapter 7. Chapter 7 was a huge deal in the sense of what was going on, but people have kind of left, people have trickled out, but, you know, it was kind of just like a church potluck, you know. People hang over for a long time, and it's like, oh my gosh, go home. Um, So it's kind of that kind of setting. And then Jesus is actually teaching here uh, in what is called the court of women. In short, it was basically just to to kind of define this area for you. Uh, It was an area, it was a court that anybody could come in and go through and and do their religious thing that they needed to do for the day. He was standing specifically where um, they would collect... they, would, they had the temple treasury there. So there was a bunch of different baskets and kind of horn-like looking things. And people could come into the court of women because anybody could go in there. They would go specifically to the temple treasury to give their, their offering, their monetary offering. They would pick one of, this, one of the many that were there and drop off their offering. They would do their thing. They would do their prayer. They would just whatever they needed, and then they would go. And so even though the festival has ended, it's still like he's still standing in a very busy place. So there's probably still some people left from it. There are people coming and going consistently. And so it was a pretty active place. And then the last thing about this context, and and when when Dave was reading, uh, and he did a good job of this, this was like a highly confrontational point. It was a piece. Like it was just like... I would have to say something like totally outrageous or like inappropriate or just I would have to say something up here for you to stand up and be like, no, that is wrong. You are wrong. So I would have to make some very controversial kind of statement for you to actually stand up and do that. So please don't do that today. Uh, I don't plan on making anything too controversial. Um, but that is, that is the scene. It's not just like a conversation over in the corner of like, hey, I don't really like what you preach. I don't really agree with what you believe. It was, this is, this is not okay. This is wrong. I don't, I don't know if you're right about this, Jesus. And so that is the context of of what our passage falls into. It is the second I am statement. If you remember, the first I am statement was, I am the bread of life. And Jesus says, and he makes the claim, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. So I'm not just the light of your life. I'm not just the light of Jerusalem. I am the light of the entire world. The places that you don't know about, the people that you don't like, the people you do know who don't know me, I am the light of the entire world. And this is, as we read through the the passage, it is right after this statement that the Pharisees and those who are there giving their tithes and offering, they're standing up and they're saying, oh boy, I don't don't know if that's necessarily right, Jesus. I don't know if I necessarily agree with you, Jesus. Are you sure you're the light of the world? And Jesus makes his bold claim. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There were two. There were two sets of of main imagery of symbolism in this feast of tabernacles. The first one was water. They talked about water a lot. They would use it in a lot of their, whichever you would call it. I don't know ceremony. Uh, And and it was it was it was a symbolism that was the centerpiece. And so Jesus, in chapter 7, he uses that imagery of water, and he says, listen, on the, de- on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus says, he stands up and cries out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so he's already used that main central illustration piece. He's already used it and says, mm. I'm the water of life. Out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. And we can see throughout Scripture, Jesus multiple times using the symbolism, the imagery of water. The second main symbolism, as you can probably guess by this point, was light. Light. And to describe this ceremony, as I was reading about it, it was kind of like this fascinating event to watch. Like, you know, when when like events and certain things come to Portland, or maybe they're coming to Oregon City if we're lucky enough. And it's like there's like rumors and like, oh man, have you done this thing yet? Have you done this this was the kind of the same kind of murmurs and rumors, not bad, but like, oh, this is coming. We're excited for this. And on a side note, Portland has some weird events. Weird events. I saw on the other day on the Oregonian, there's a naked bike ride. I'm like, that is, that is not, we need Jesus. Um, that is just wrong in so many ways. That's good. Um, anyways, the rumor with this was, the, the, the word about this was that those who had not seen these things, meaning the ceremony of light, had never seen a wonder in their life. They had never seen a wonder in their life. So basically, in just very layman's terms, it's, there was these four massive bowls that were lifted up some way, somehow. To reach them, you had to get on a ladder or whatever they had. And inside those four bowls was four individual bowls. And these things were so large, they were so big that they would set on fire that they would use the priest's robes from the previous year. They would use their robes and soak them in oil and basically toss them up into the bowl and light that thing on fire. I thought, really fun youth event. Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) let's take clothes and set things on fire. It'll be great. Um, All my youth pants in here are like, uh, I don't know about this guy. Uh, And so they would light this thing. And in a day, in an area, in the context of there was no, there's no public lighting. So it's like nowadays when, when, the, when the power goes out, I remember in West Virginia, because there's nobody there, but when the power goes out, it's like dark. I mean, it's dark, dark, dark. And it was the same thing in this context. That there was no public lighting. Like you can't just flip on a light switch, or you you don't have the street lamps. And so for such an event, it was such a big deal, and it was so massive. And the walls of this temple were were yellow, and they were limestone. And so the fire would reflect off of the walls, and all of Jerusalem would be illuminated. And everybody would just, I guess they'd just party all night because they're like, hey, we can see things. This is great. Rock on. And it was a huge ordeal. And it was a massive, massive event. Jesus is standing at the very location of where these things were lit. These things were lit in the court of women near the treasury. It's exactly where he is standing in his proclaiming that I am the light of the world. So these massive things that you see here, they're not the light. I am the light of the world. And so when one would hear this, light is, you know, it's it's symbolic, okay? It's used many times. Even at this point, it's used many times in Scripture. So if anybody was thinking that, okay, I'm the light of the world, they could jump to numerous passages in their Scripture. They could jump to numerous pieces, and they would say, "Mm, okay, like, they would immediately probably go to Exodus when they're talking about the, the, the pillar of fire that, that God appointed to lead the Israelites through the desert and, and light the whole thing up. Okay, well, well Jesus, you're saying you're, ooh, that's not, mm, I, I'm a little confused by that. Or they could go to King David, right, when he's writing and he's saying, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. They could think of that. They could go to the prophet Isaiah when he was prophesying in chapter 60 that the Lord will be your everlasting light. So Jesus, what in the world are you saying you are? Are you indeed you are saying these, are you indeed claiming to be these things? And so the Pharisees, they immediately get up and challenge Jesus. They say, "Mm, I don't know about this. Where's your father? (laughs) Who lets you out? (laughs) Right? Where have you been? Where are you going? Who are you to claim these things? And Jesus, I can just imagine Jesus. He's like, "Mm, I know where I've been. He kind of responds in a sassy kind of way I know where I've been, I know where I'm going. What's he saying there? I know where I've been. You can go back even further than the, pillar of cloud, than the pillar of fire. You can go back even further than King David, even further than prophet Isaiah. All the way back to Genesis one. All the way back to Genesis one. In Genesis one, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, was without void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. So Jesus is saying, I know where I've been. I am the Word made flesh. I was with God. I am the active force of creation. I was there when everything was lit up. And he says, I know where I'm going. Where's he going? Revelation 22. And on the day they will no longer need the sun or the moon, for the glory of God will be their light. And so he's making a statement. He's saying, I am the light of the world. I was there when it was created. That's me. And so we, I ask the question of, with that being said, with Genesis 1, with Jesus is The active force of creation. What does that mean? How is Jesus our light? In Moses, it's outlined in in Genesis 1, it's outlined three ways. The first one, void to life. The earth was out form and it was void. Void to life. This is the first way that I think, that I truly believe that God brings light to our life. We all at some point, every human being, every teenager, every adult, every parent, every senior citizen, every retiree, at some point, multiple points in your life, you ask yourself, well, what now? What do I do? Where do I go from here? Void to life. This question can come from like two two kind of spheres of things. It can come from positive or negative. I'll make it simple, positive sphere. We, I think we always kind of initially jump to the negative sphere of things and say, you know, this question is brought on by, by hardship. This question is brought on by unplanned circumstances. This, prob, this, this question is, you know, I have this issue. This didn't go according to plan. I wasn't, I wasn't gonna do it like this. This isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I think that I need. How did this happen? What do I do now? And that question comes from the negative sphere of things. The this thing, this this same question can come from the positive sphere. It's like, man, I've accomplished everything I thought I was going to accomplish. I'm doing everything I thought I was going to be doing. I'm retired. My kids finally moved away. <laughs> I'm doing good. And, we, and, and the same question from either sphere, can we all face it at some point in life? And it can send us into a frenzy if we don't have the light. There's a void to our life. There is a void in our life. There is something that is missing in every single one of us from the very first day you are born. And the only thing that will ever, ever give life to that void is Christ, is the light, is the light of life. That is the only thing that's going to work. I talk about it often on Wednesday nights, the cycle of destruction. The cycle of destruction is when you are plugging that void with something other than Jesus. It can be any kind of habit. It can be, it can be we, we always assume it's a bad thing. It can be a good thing. It can be a good habit. It can be our own doing. It can be our own thoughts. It can be our own practices that we're plugging into that void and we're trying to say, I need life from this. And Jesus is making clear here, there's nothing that is going to fill that void. I am the light of life. Second way, formless to form. The definition of formless, always got to have one of these in here. The definition of formless is having no regular form or shape. It's lacking order of arrangement. So, you know, in, in thinking of scripture as well, it's like you can think of this, of, of, of a potter who's going to, he's going to create a clay jar, out of this big, ugly mass of, of, of blob, I don't know, uh, whatever it might be. And he's going to form this into what he's, he is seeing in his mind, into what he desires it to be. He is going to mold this jar and, and create something out of practically a blob of nothing, of formlessness. And without him doing this, there's no way that this mess is going to end up into a beautiful jar. You see where I'm going here? There's no way that this mess is going to end up into a beautiful jar. If you've been in church, have been raised in in church, this is the process of sanctification, right? It's, It's one of those big ish words, right? This is the process of sanctification. This is the process of God, of Christ, looking at us and saying, I want to mold you. I want to form you from nothing, we were created in the image of God. God created man out of the dust, and he's doing the same thing with us. So we have this void that needs life, and we also don't only need life, but we need form. And he's bringing form to us if our life is in him, if our faith is in him. And this, this journey of sanctification, right, it's, it's, like a, it's a painful one, right? Right? It takes a long time. It takes a long time. I, when, when, when my daughter is born, hopefully in the ne- not in the next hour, <laughs> not that I'm going to be that long, but <laughs> when my daughter is born, when Brindley is born, like she's not going to come out of Megan's womb doing push-ups. Right? She's not going to come out of Megan's womb doing push-ups, doing sit-ups, doing burpees, you know, she, she is like 99% blob, right, whatever, whatever that might be. She's got, she got a soft spot in her head somewhere, I don't know, I should probably figure out, you know, that you shouldn't even touch. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh man, I'll pray for you, Justin. Uh, <laughs> listen, I appreciate your prayers. I've never held a newborn. Uh, I'll, you know, that's why her middle name is Grace. I'm going to need the grace of God uh, and of Megan. She's not going to be born able to run, able to jump, able to do push-ups. But hopefully, hopefully, over time, over a long time, she's going to learn to eat. She's going to learn to, to sit up on her, on her own. She's going to learn to walk. She's going to learn to run. She's going to learn to do all of these things on her own. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in one week, but it, rather it happens Over her, quite frankly, her entire life. Our sanctification is over our entire spiritual life. So, from the moment that we place our faith in Christ, so our our spiritual rebirth, our spiritual birth, it's helpful to think of that moment like we are 99% blob, we are formless. And the only way that we are ever going to be formed is through the light. It is through Christ. And then the third and the final way is dark to light. So he, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, out, was, was without form, without void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Romans 3 says, Paul's writing this, Romans 3 says, there is no one righteous. There is no one who seeks God. There is nobody who understands. And then further down the line he says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The light... Christ in our lives reveals a truth that we could never, ever know without him, that we could never, ever discover without him. What makes me think of this, and this is the whole traditional dark delight kind of, there's always got to be one of these illustrations in a sermon like this. So Meg and I are like been married, I don't know, 15, 16 months, somewhere in there. And so we're still kind of like in that newlywed phase that when one of us wakes up, or when, at least when I wake up, and, and she does the same, like we don't, like if we wake up in the middle of the night and we gotta go to the bathroom, you know, we do the whole like, I don't wanna wake up my spouse thing still. We still do that. I don't know if that ever ends at some point. Maybe you're a jerk and you just say, get up. I don't, I don't know what you do, but you know, and you do like, if there's like a night vision camera on you, it'd be the most embarrassing thing to watch after the fact. Cause you're like sliding out of the bed. You're like, like it's gonna help. And you don't turn on the light. And for us, like, my bed is right here. The bathroom door is right here. It's only, like, six feet away. And no matter how many times in the dark I'm stumbling through it, I'm like, I don't know where to step. Okay, and we have two dogs that sleep in the floor, not our bed. They sleep in the floor, and I'm, like, trying not to step on them. And I'm, like, looking, and I'm like, where is the door? I can't find it. And... I can't, I can't make a clear path. I can't walk with confidence at all for just a mere six feet of darkness that I have experienced numerous times. <laughs> numerous times. I can't do it. The light reveals truth to us that we could never see without it. It's also under, under this point, I think it's important to note it's not to say that everybody who is living in darkness, who doesn't follow Christ, who doesn't place their faith in, in Christ, is not to say that they have terrible lives. There are plenty of people in our world who are living life, who, who don't know Christ. And for the most part, they seem to be just enjoying it. It's not to say that anybody outside of Christ has the most miserable, cold life there is. It's not true. Like an unchristian, they can enjoy a steak dinner just as much as a Christian can. An unchristian can take pleasure, can find joy in their marriage. They can find joy in parenting maybe. Maybe. And that is truth, and and that is from what we would call common grace, meaning that every good and perfect gift, it comes from above. So, And without it, thank goodness, like the world would be even worse off than what it is. And so even though people aren't in Christ, they are living in darkness, they still at times can enjoy every gift and perfect gift from above. But I would argue and I would plead with anybody that I come across, That if they are living in darkness, even if your life is good, even if your life makes sense, even if you do have joy, brother, sister, a life in Christ is like nothing you can ever imagine. Your marriage can be more like than anything you would ever imagine. I can probably be a half-decent husband, but being in Christ is going to make me a husband I could never, ever, ever be without, without Christ. I'm going to mess up as a parent. I have a lot to learn clearly about being a parent. And I can maybe even get half decent at it without Christ. But I can never parent in such a way like I ever could in such a way under Christ. When I am establishing, when I am putting God number one in my life, even in good things and hard things in the journey, there is still light that reveals truth to me, that is in Christ. And so we come from, from void, from having this emptiness to having life. We have formless, we don't know what to do. We don't know where we're going to form. God's saying, let me, let me mold you, let me love you. And we have dark to light. There is still so much to life. There's so many truths in life, in scripture, in the gospel that bring value and bring true joy by placing your faith in Christ, by acknowledging that Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. So he follows it with an instruction. He says, follow me follow me. The people that Jesus are talking to, is talking to, the people that Jesus is talking to is, once again, he is, he is standing in the court of temples. He is standing near the treasury. We like to think anytime in scripture or anytime in our own lives, when we face persecution, when somebody is maybe making fun of us, when we're facing something that is going against God, we always like to think and point to the atheist who's doing it or to the person of another religion who is doing it or to somebody who is not following Christ, somebody who does not know God. Those are the people that persecute you. And that will always happen. There will always be those people out there who persecute you for what you believe and how you live your life. If they're not persecuting you, you either need to get out of a bubble or you need to do something else, right? So it will always happen. But in this text, it's it's not those people, it's not the atheist, it's not the agnostic, it's not the Mormons, it's not the Muslims, it's people who have faith, it is the Jewish people, it is religious people, it is the devout people, it is the pe- you're not going to go give an offering to something you don't believe in, probably, you're, you're not, you're not going to go to this court and, to, and listen to Jesus if you don't care about him at all, or about religion at all, or about this faith at all, and so the people who are interacting and who are persecuting Jesus and who are saying, oh, Jesus, I don't, I, don't, I don't agree with you, they're the religious people. And the really hard thing about this is when we think of these people and who these people would be in our modern world, it would be us. We are the religious people because we're here. We are the Christ followers. We are the people who are going to church. We are the people who are saying our faith is number one in our life. And so when we read this interaction to truly learn from it, we can't say, oh, Jesus, I'd be standing right beside you. Let's throw down. Let's change, I don't know, water into wine. Let's, let's zap them. Let's, you know, just do one of your cool things that you've done before. Let's get them. And there's, there's many interactions with, with unbelievers, of course, with Jesus and with other Christians who are persecuting. But in, in, in this text, it is the religious. And so we have to look at it and we have to ask ourselves the question of, this is me, what can I learn from it? Jesus is telling these people to follow him. As a, I could, I guess, I would be considered like a, a religious professional because I'm because I'm a student pastor. And and reading this, and understanding this. For me, it's convicting because I I would be the person trying to get teens in the temple, I guess. (laughs) I would be that person. And so if Jesus was to walk in my student ministry, if Jesus was to walk in our church, if Jesus was to walk in your house and begin to question and to instruct you about all of our ways and all of our traditions, because that's what he's doing here. He's saying, those things aren't the light. I'm the light. Those things, it's not the water. I'm the water. Follow me. And it's, if, if Jesus were to do this to us, what, what would my reaction be? Of course, I would be like, oh, man, Jesus himself, you know, shows up. In my youth room? Yeah, Jesus, how do you want to do student ministry? <laughs> Tell me. But I have I have my own, I'm getting ahead of myself. First thing. Get over our own biases to continue to grow to continue to grow. After Jesus states that he is the light, he gives instruction to those who are following him will never walk in dark, darkness. But the people, they they just they're not grasping it. They're continuing to confront him. They're saying, you know, they're, they're even saying, like, are you a little bit crazy? Like, are you, are you going to kill yourself? Because you're saying where you go, I can't go, so that would be the only thing. And, and, and hey, who's your daddy? You know, kind of thing. Like, well, well, what the heck is that? You know, or, or I, don't, I don't know where you've been. And then it even says in the text, who are you? Who are you to tell me what I'm supposed to do? You can't tell me. I don't know where you go. I don't know where you've been. And they can't in their struggle. Well, some of them do because it says at the end, some of them, and many followed him. But they immediately go into this defense of, of questioning Jesus and saying it's crazy. And they can't get over their own bias to continue to grow or to grow, begin to grow, period. On Wednesday nights, who I thought of immediately when I read this and was studying it, was on Wednesday nights, we're going through the book of Jonah. Jonah had this same reaction. Jonah was prophesying, right? Things were good. God's kingdom was, they were claiming borders that hadn't been claimed in years. They were advancing. Life was good. Jonah's like, man, I am a hardcore patriot, right? Right? I love the army, I love the military, this is good. I like prophesying, I like what I do, and I'm gonna keep on doing it. And, and, and the word of, word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, hey Jonah, I, I need you to leave your country and your people and your comfort, and I need you to go to the Ninevites and preach the word of God. And what, is, what does Jonah do? right, so the illustration I gave or kind of like to make it real to the students is it's like if if we were in Oregon, if Jonah was in Oregon, he was told to go to Montana because we know they need Jesus, and he was told to go to Montana and instead of going to Montana sorry for anybody who's from Montana <laughs> uh, instead of going to Montana, he he gets on a bus and goes to like lA. Because he's like, I ain't, I ain't going to those rednecks. You know, I ain't doing that thing. And then he, he, he sets sail for Hawaii. So he goes by land as far away as he can get. And then he's like, I'm going to go even further. And I'm going to get on a boat. And I'm going to go even further away from those people. Because they're not my people. They're not like me. They're godless. And I don't care about them. And Jonah doesn't even talk to God until he's in the dang belly of a fish. Like the whole story that we've read, that, that was the whole kind of summary of chapter one. And it's not until chapter two, when he has left, when he has traveled, when he has gotten on a boat, when he has dealt with the very people that he is supposed to minister to, is not until he is thrown overboard and in the belly of a fish, probably very dark, That he finally talks to God, that he finally says, ah, I've got an issue in my life, (laughs) I've got a, I've got a prejudice in my life, and for Jonah to ever, ever to grow, he's got to get over it, he's got to get over that bias, he's got to get over that prejudice. He's got to get over that way he's done the the way he's done something for so long, even if it's good. Like things were good for Jonah, he's got to get over it. Because why? If if God is here, and anything else is here—good, bad, ugly, beautiful—it's idolatry. It's not going to work. It's not going to bring life from void. It's not going to bring form from formless. It's not going to bring truth from the darkness. It's going to only propel us even deeper into those things. If I were to ask you the question, like for, especially for those of you who are maybe converted like later in life, but if I were to ask you the question, hey, before you converted, how much like Jesus would you be? How how do you think you were? And I think all of you would be like, oh, dude, I was a dirt bag. <laughs> like, there's, I was nothing like Jesus. I was no, 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 no. I, I was missing it. I didn't get it. I didn't, no, 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 no. I was way, I was way far from Jesus. If I were to ask you that question today. Post-conversion, hey, how much are you like Jesus? I hope you would still have the same kind of reaction. Maybe you're not as bad as you once were. Maybe you are following Christ. But I still hope and I still pray that your response would be, brother, sister, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I'm trying to follow him, but I fail every day. But I fail every day. This journey of sanctification, this journey of void to life, it is a lifelong one from spiritual birth to one day glorification, being with Him. It is a lifelong one. And if in the middle of it somewhere we create this bias, we create this tradition or this thing that we can't get over, we're not going to continue to grow. When Jesus tells us something, we're going to be like, are you really sure about that, Jesus? The second thing that, he, that we must learn is we must identify complacency. Karl Barth, he was like this big-time the, theologian dude, um, And I say that's totally nonchalant. I probably shouldn't say it like that. He he was a big deal. He was a big deal. Carl Barth. Carl Barth. There we go. He writes this historic 1919 commentary on the book of Romans. Uh, And and in seminary, like, I can't say I've read the entire thing because my head would probably explode, but it's like, it it is a centerpiece in every single seminary in the United States. If If it's not, like, it's not a very good seminary. Um... So he's writing in Romans 2. And at the end of Romans 2, it's when Paul is, is quite frankly, he's attacking a tradition. He is attacking an ancient Judaism tradition of circumcision. And he's saying to the Jews, he's saying, Look, you are literally placing your faith and placing your hope in this, of this world, human action to save you. This thing has been, lo- been around for so long, and at, yes, yeah, some point it was a crucial piece in faith, but, but listen, not anymore. The only way, the only way to get the light of life, the only way to obtain salvation isn't through this worldly, earthly act. It's through placing your faith in Christ. And these, so these Jews, basically what they were doing is they were saying, hey, as long as I'm circumcised, I am good. I'm good. I can live my life however I want. I can do whatever I want. I did this earthly act at the probably young age. I've done it. I'm good. They had grown complacent in such a thing. And we can do, we can do the same thing. Barth, so going back to this guy, Barth concludes that Paul, he's not just confronting this religious complacency in this ancient kind of way, but he is confronting the current day church. He's saying those who point to religious ancestry, so those of you who have multiple generations of faith in your family, that's a great thing, it's not a bad thing. But if you're, if you're pointing to that for your salvation, it's, it's not going to work. Nothing's going to come of it other than just destruction or hopelessness or formless or void. He says, those who point to religious ancestry and traditions as their basis of religious security will actually find themselves in serious jeopardy. If someone were to ask you, hey, are you a Christian? And if you were to point, once again, these aren't bad things, but if you were to point immediately, oh, I attend church. <laughs> oh, I pray before every meal. Oh, I've done this. Oh, I filled out that VBS card. Oh, I, if, if, we are, if we are pointing to this as that is what is saving us, so we're good, we're failing. We're failing. We're falling short. And so we must identify this complacency in our lives. Barth, he, he describes the life of, of, of these people, he gives this illustration. It is the life of people who are headed on a long journey. Along their way, they find a sign pointing them westward. The signpost is there to convey them to their destination. So there's a sign there that says, hey, go westward. You can find your destination. Instead of going westward, they stop and create a life for themselves under the, under the sign. They built a whole civili- they, they built a whole civilization there. They celebrate the signposts, they tell stories, they've published books, rituals evolve, songs are written, liturgies are followed. A few of them, a few of them travel on westward and they, they discover that, hey, it, it's right. And then they come back and they say, yeah, it, it, it was right. It led us to where we thought we, or where we were going. But they stay under the sign. The second and the third generations and the fourth generations and the fifth generations, they build a life around this signpost and have forgotten the meaning of the journey. Their love is built on stories rather than one's true experience. not on stories of arriving or the prophetic call to get on with the journey, but rather they just stay right there. And this is what we can do in our journey. Our journey of sanctification, the process of making Christ the light of our lives, is a lifelong one. No matter if you are 85, 50, 40, 12, 3, it is a lifelong journey. And if there is complacency, so if there's complacency or if there's a bias in our life, it can and it will prevent you from being molded, from being formed, from finding life in that void. It can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. But church, with the light of Christ with the light in your life, you can be in such a way that you can never, you you can be in such a life, you can be in in such a way of, of you could have never imagined because you are in Christ, because you have the life. You can have a truth that you didn't even know existed. You can forgive people when you couldn't possibly ever forgive them. You can get over that tragic event of how you were treated unfairly or or uncontrolled circumstances came on your life. You can get over that and you can grow and you can have your life in Christ. For me, when I was was going through this, it it brought me back to... A personal time in my life. The teens, the teens have heard this story. Um, my dad, my parents are divorced. Uh, my dad, um, he decided to. oop, that's a mountain. Oh, well, there's Mount Hood for you. Um, he decided to get it on 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 eHarmony, <laughs> and, and he met somebody, and he got married in three months. Yeah, it was it was it was quite the kind of thing, um, and it's it's not a knock on online dating. It's not a knock on anything like that. But I don't know, getting married in three months. Oof, uh, <laughs> but that's what they did. And I remember um, they had been married probably for two months. So at this point, they knew each other for five months. Um, I remember going to his house, to their house, and I was going to attend. Uh, an engineering camp. <laughs> that sounds super nerdy. Uh, shout out to all you engineers out there. You do something I can't do. But that was me. That was who I am um, at that time. Uh, then Jesus pointed me towards youth ministry. Thank you. Uh, um, and I just remember it was, it was the first day. Like I had been there for like three or four hours. And even as like a 13-year-old, I, I was just, I was picking up on a vibe that was, it just felt awkward, like, I was like, oh, this is, I don't know what I'm picking up on, but, but something is wrong. And, and basically what was unfolding, and I didn't know it at the time, is uh, my dad's wife at the time, she's ex-wife now, um, she, she suffered from, I'm pretty sure, uh, undiagnosed bipolar disease. And I guess for her, like, I, I'm, I'm not a psychologist. I, I can't tell you for sure if this is what it was. But what, would, what triggered it was jealousy. So my dad, who was super focused on me, who was like all about Justin, all of a sudden wasn't caring about Jan. Whatever, whatever it, it triggered in her, it, it just it, it pushed her off a theoretical cliff. Like, it just it, it set her off. And I remember driving home from, like, a restaurant or something, and we were on, we were on, the, for, on the freeway, and it, and it got so, like, confrontational that she was just like, pull this dang car over, in different words, and let me out. And dad was like, fine, I'll let you out, and lets her out on this freeway. And then we just went on home. And for the next, like, six hours of my life, it was one of the longest, I just remember having this anxiety of these thoughts of, like, oh, my gosh, what's, what's going to happen when, when Jan gets back here? It, it, was, it was freaking me out. And sure enough, she inevitably comes home. And long story short, it just, it escalated to a point of, of Jan looking at me, a 13-year-old version of Justin, and says you should just kill yourself. You're worthless. You're never going to make anything of your life. So go ahead and, self, go ahead and do yourself a favor and kill yourself. And I remember I, I, I literally ran out of the house because I was just destroyed and distraught. My mom eventually came and picked me up and, and I went home. And for three years of my life, even though I was a, my youth pastor filled the role of my father. I was super close with Mark. He did my wedding. For three years of my life, I was active in church. I was active in youth group. The only youth trip I ever missed was for that dang wedding. All right? I'm not salty. Uh, <laughs> I was active, I was, and I was happy, but, but deep, deep down inside of me, I had this anger, I had this hurt that I could hide so well, that I could just put in the back of my mind and maybe not think about for days. And as you know, anytime you keep something in the dark, what does it do? It, it doesn't go away. It doesn't grow, grow smaller. It grows bigger. And I remember it was three years after that when our youth, when my youth pastor he challenged us. He says he said to, to our youth group and to me because he, you know it was one of those things he was speaking right to me. I felt he was making this very point. He said life a life in Christ is a lifelong journey. But if you have something, if you have an unforgivable thing, if you have a block, if you have a snag, if you have any of that, you, you you're gonna have to you gotta get rid of it because it's gonna stunt your growth. You're not going to be molded the way God wants you to mold if you're holding on to something that you shouldn't. And I remember just feeling overwhelmed and convicted that even though Jan never, ever, ever asked for forgiveness, even though I know she does not care a lick about me, even though she was, she never asked for it, and God made clear to me, Listen, if if I'm going to be the light of your life, if this is going to be a lifelong journey, yeah, you, you, you can be hurt. Yeah, it hurts. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, you can be angry. But you have to give it over to me. You're going to have to give it over to me. And I can do with that what nothing else can. I can do with that what nothing else can. I can mold you, I can form you, I can give you life. And I remember, so I didn't, the day I felt that conviction, right, I had had the same reaction as these people. I was like, (laughs) whatever. Maybe he wasn't talking to me. Maybe it was just my own conscience. It wasn't Jesus. And, And I just remember. It, and it was a painful process. And I just remember God chipping on me and c- continually bringing to my attention, some way, somehow, just, you you have to give this to me. If you are going to go on this lifelong journey with me, you have to give this to me. And for me, and, and, and there's been numerous, so for me, I was coming from like the negative sphere of things, there's been numerous positive sphere things for my life my desires, my wants that have gotten in the way of this lifelong journey in Christ. There's been traditions. And so for you, as as a follower of Christ, as as a member of a church, as a family, as an individual, I ask you, church, will you get over your own biases? Will you identify complacency in your life so that you can continue to be molded and to be formed in Christ? Will you get over that unforgivable thing? Will you get over that hurt? Will you give it to Christ so that he will be the light of your life? As I always say with things, it's, it's your choice, right? Right? Your spouse can't make it for you. I can't make it for you. Your friends, your pastors. It has to be you making that decision. Will you go on this lifelong journey with Christ? Will you continue to grow? Will you identify it? Will you let Him make life from void? Will you make, let Him form you from the formless? Will you see truth come into your life in places you never thought were possible. The decision is yours. Only you can do it.